and welcome to the Market Matters podcast from Emirates MBD. I'm Katija Huck, Chief Economist and Head of Research, and I'm joined today by Edward Bell, Senior Director for Market Economics and our resident oil expert. We've had a, a raft of important data over the last week, um, both regional and global, um, as well as a couple of important central bank meetings to digest. Um, so let's start with our region uh, and the latest PMI survey data for the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Before I get into the, the nuts and bolts of it, um, the Purchasing Managers Index is basically a, a composite a number based on a survey of non-oil private sector businesses. And it tells us about whether those business conditions have improved or deteriorated from the previous month. So a reading above 50 shows an improvement in business conditions, and the higher the number, the stronger the improvement over the previous month. Um, obviously, a reading below 50 is the opposite. It shows a deterioration in business conditions, and then a reading of exactly 50 or thereabouts suggests very little change from the previous month. Now, the UAE PMI jumped to about 55.7 last month um, from 50, 50, I beg your pardon, 53.3 in September. Now, the October reading was the highest since the middle of 2019 and really seems to be reflecting the impact of Expo 2020. So when we look at the components of the survey, we see business activity um, or business output and new work rising very, very sharply in October. And that was really on the back of domestic demand within the UAE rather than exports. Businesses were also the most optimistic about their future output than they have been since last summer when the economy reopened after the lockdown. But what's been interesting is that the increase in new work and activity in the UAE is not yet translating into job growth in the private sector. So businesses seem to be expecting their employees to do more um, instead of adding to headcount and therefore costs. And I think to a large extent that reflects the pressure that businesses have been under to try and keep their costs down um, over the last couple of years, even in the face of rising input costs. Although I have to say the surveys for the UAE and Saudi don't show the same kind of input cost pressures that we've seen in some of the bigger economies like the United States and Europe. So we have seen, we have seen a little bit of um, cost pressures coming through from higher shipping costs and perhaps uh, raw materials. Um, but it's not to the same extent as, as what's being reported for uh, the larger developed economies. We've also seen similar trends in Saudi Arabia, where several months of strong growth in business activity and new work have also not yet translated into faster job growth in the private sector. The employment index in Saudi Arabia is still hovering around 50, indicating very little change in terms of the number of people employed uh, in the non-oil private sector. Now, you could do that for, for several months, um, and certainly backlogs of work are rising in the UAE, which suggests that um, businesses are not really able to keep up with the, with the demand. Um, but at some point, we would expect businesses to go out and boost their headcount in order to then meet the demand that they are seeing in their order books. As we've talked about before, uh, job growth is particularly important um, and it's a big driver of overall population growth uh, in the UAE. In Saudi Arabia as well, though, um, there's been a huge push for Saudis to be employed in the private sector um, instead of in, in the public sector. 
And so I think the government as well will be looking for uh, businesses to do more in terms of absorbing uh, new entrants into the labour market and taking some of the strain off government budgets. Um, speaking of government budgets, it's probably a, a good segue to, to bring in Ed Bell. Hi, Ed. Hi. Thanks, Kirito. Um, so we had last week um, an OPEC plus meeting, um, and it was quite an interesting one because before the event, there was quite a lot of pressure um, from the United States, from Japan, from some of the other big oil importing countries for OPEC to increase production by more than they had planned. Um, in the end, they decided to stick with their 400,000 barrel per day uh, increase for December. Can you tell us why OPEC Plus is not rushing to meet the demands of, of oil importers in terms of uh, producing and exporting more oil? Yeah, like you say, Kateja, we had this somewhat of a, a rebuff of calls from the United States and these other big importing nations to accelerate the pace of production increases. Uh, if you recall, we had this agreement reached uh, at the end of July where OPEC Plus will add 400,000 barrels uh, 400,000 barrels a day each month um, until they unwind all of their COVID-related production cuts, which would probably mean they unwind it by some way midway through 2022. Um, I think what we had, though, at this meeting, as you said, interesting because you had very vocal pressure, uh, somewhat informal, though it's still this point, from the United States, Japan, India for, these, for the OPEC plus countries to accelerate that pace. But I think the pushback is for a couple of factors. One is that the current high oil prices that we're seeing with Brent prices, say over $80 a barrel, they're not exactly an oil issue. So we have some pretty crucial energy shortages affecting major economies, the Eurozone, uh, UK, China at the moment, but they're not actually shortages of oil or oil products. It's really much more of an issue where we're seeing a shortfall in natural gas, in renewables power, uh, in coal. And so oil is kind of being bid up as this kind of energy shortfall proxy. So I think the statements we've seen from OPEC Plus with that respect are kind of fair. They're, they are to their credit. Um, on the other hand, though, I think there is an awareness among OPEC plus ministers that the kind of good times that they're uh, experiencing right now in terms of oil demand growing quite strongly in terms of its recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic uh, and oil prices being quite high are probably not going to last forever. So there is an incentive to try and get inventories down globally uh, quite sharply by the end of 2021 or certainly into the, the start of 2022 and take uh, the sort of the good oil prices and run with them um, as they can, as long as they can. So I guess OPEC is um, looking ahead to potentially too much oil in the second half of next year and not wanting to get to that point faster by increasing production now um, when demand potentially is going to slow. But in the meantime, that leaves oil importing countries with the shortage what can they do? Do they have any options um, to try and offset the tightness uh, that's been brought on by the OPEC plus production restraint? Yeah, well, uh, you know, unfortunately, in the first instance, I think for most important countries is you just have to endure the impact of higher prices. And I think this is a somewhat of a truism in commodity prices that the best cure for high prices is high prices. You'll have a negative demand reaction. 
um, and things will drop off and that will bring oil prices down. And then I think that's the expectation that's going to happen, maybe not in the next couple of months, but certainly over a much longer time frame. Time frame. And we're already starting to see gasoline prices or petrol prices in big markets at multi-year highs. So for instance, in Japan, we've had gasoline prices at the highest level they've been in seven years. Um, beyond just having to absorb those high prices, though, uh, oil importing nations generally have large strategic reserves of oil and other oil products. Um, in the United States, this is most obvious in what's called their strategic petroleum reserve. Uh, Transparent has about 612, 613 million barrels, and it's a bit less than 90% full at this time. The U.S. President Joe Biden could authorize a sale from the SBR or uh, arrange a swap with oil traders so they can draw down on the, the strategic reserves now and then be replenished in, say, a year's time. And that could help to uh, lead to a dip in oil prices, but that might not last for very long, and it might not matter or hit the markets that matter most acutely. So, for instance, U.S. gasoline prices are synced much more in line with international oil prices than they are with domestic ones. And the, the SPR is generally used more when you have these kind of uh, extraneous shocks to the oil market. So it's been drawn down, for instance, in the 1991 Gulf War, um, also in 2011, when there was interruptions to supply from Libya, uh, or more recently in 2017, when you had Hurricane Harvey hit the U.S. Gulf Coast and disrupt oil production and the U.S. the, the refining system there. So it's really these kind of extraneous, unpredictable variables that the SPR is there to prevent and be an insurance policy against. What we have now with OPEC is that they are essentially, you know, holding the oil market intentionally, holding uh, oil out of the market intentionally to keep things tight. Okay, so it's to some extent an artificial shortage, right? It's not that there's no capacity to produce the oil, it's that the oil producing countries don't want to rush to, to resupply the market um, and, and perhaps get to a situation where there is excess supply um, in, in, in the second half of next year. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so basically what you're saying is we, we will probably see oil prices remain high in the near term. Um, what is the outlook for next year, though? Yeah, I think for it's it's worth bearing in mind that we do have this kind of restraint on the part of OPEC plus right now, but they are still incrementally adding oil back to the market. That's still going to be, uh, you know, 400 KBD per month doesn't sound like a lot, but that's 1.2 million barrels a day per quarter. So those are some pretty significant increases that they are going to be making. And I would also argue you know, somewhat sort of backing up the OPEC plus position that it's not just them that are um, showing some level of restraint in terms of production increases. We've also seen that uh, from the United States, the oil industry there is recovering in terms of its production uh, levels, but it's much slower. So I think in the We've gotten used in the past couple of years to uh, double-digit percentage increases in production from the U.S. shale patch. We're not getting that this year. We are getting production increasing, but at a much shallower, much slower pace than we've seen. But that being said, going into 2022, um, as noted, OPEC Plus is going to be increasing production and probably unwind almost all of its cuts from the COVID pandemic by probably July or August. And you're also seeing um, still investment going into the U.S. shale patch. So most of those big forecasting agencies, OPEC itself included, but the International Energy Agency and the EIA from the U.S., all are expecting to see U.S. oil production at the end of 2022 
higher than it was at the end of 2019. So with that kind of implication that you have a, a positive supply response to high oil prices, both from OPEC plus and the kind of commercially oriented producers in the United States, as well as demand growing, but kind of reverting back to a, a pre-pandemic normalized trend of slow but steady demand growth. Um, it does suggest to us that oil prices are going to slow down or are going to drop off and slow down probably quite materially in the second half of 2022. Okay, so we have higher oil prices perhaps um, in the first half of the year and then uh, low prices uh, in the second half of the year. On average though, are we looking um, at a Brent oil price uh, higher or lower than 2021 next year? We think that it's going to be a little bit lower than we've experienced so far in 2021, but the kind of degree on average is not going to be that material. So we might be going from, say, $70 a barrel on average this year to sort of $65, $67 a barrel. But I think what's worth bearing in mind is there's quite a lot of uncertainty about what happens in the second half of next year. So there is a potential that if you have the production um, plans that look like they're in place right now, we could be going back into a pretty heavy oil market surplus, which sounds pretty welcome given where oil prices and energy prices are now, uh, but would really be not the ideal outcome, I think, for most of the key OPEC economies. Right. So, I mean, I think one of the biggest benefits of the developments in oil markets that we've seen this year is that the GCC countries, which had for the most part seen their budget deficits widen significantly last year, have been able to narrow those deficits um, very, very significantly in, in 2021. Um, and it really sets them up, I think, um, for a, a much more positive outlook in terms of both uh, their budgets um, and, and the overall sentiment in the region on growth next year. Although I would caution that I think there's been a fundamental change in the way that governments in the GCC are are looking at their budgets. So in, in previous cycles where we've had oil prices rise, there's generally been um, a sense of, well, we can spend a bit more, we don't have to move as fast on fiscal reform because we've got all this money um, from oil revenues, which, which give us a buffer. Um, but I think you know, the developments over the last couple of years have really shown GCC governments um, that they can't rely on oil revenues to be able to sustain spending over the medium term. There is a lot of volatility. And when we look 20, 30, 40 years out, um, you know, the likelihood is that oil prices will probably be lower than they are today. And so there's a real sense that the fiscal reform needs to continue, that budgets need to become much more diversified in terms of where the revenue is coming from. And it also means that the economies in the region should not be relying on government spending to drive growth, right? That growth needs to come from the private sector. And so there's a lot of structural reform that, that is happening and needs to happen to facilitate that. So just because um, oil prices may be a little higher than, than we had expected doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to get this massive increase in, in spending in the region um, to drive growth. I think the, the impact you know, from the government side is, is going to be a bit more modest and a bit more careful in terms of where that money is invested. Um, but overall, higher oil prices are generally good for GCC budgets and GCC oil exporters, but they're not as positive for consumers around the world um, because obviously they push up inflation. And inflation is something that the financial markets have been 
quite a lot more worried about um, in recent weeks than, than perhaps they were three, four months ago. Um, and certainly the markets are pricing in a much more aggressive response from central banks to the inflation pressures that we're seeing. But the central banks themselves um, appear to be a little bit more sanguine in terms of um, the inflation outlook that they are seeing and reluctant perhaps to rush into tightening monetary policy too quickly. So last week, both the US Federal Reserve and the Bank of England uh, had policy meetings and both of them pushed back against market expectations somewhat. Um, Let's talk about the Bank of England first, because I think that's where the market was more surprised um, in terms of uh, the bank deciding to keep rates on hold, where the market had been pricing uh, an increase in the benchmark rate of around 15 uh, basis points. Uh, Why was the market surprised by the the Bank of England's decision? Why had the market been expecting them to raise rates and and then they didn't? Well, I think the messaging that we had from um, Bank of England officials, including the Governor Bailey, leading up to this meeting was, you know, be prepared that they could make this a live meeting, that rates could be going up in the near term. I think, you know, the issues that we're seeing in the US, UK economy, pardon me, in terms of uh, prices and inflation, um, and certainly the shortfall in terms of material being moved around the country, all are feeding into quite an anxious inflation outlook. And the commentary from uh, central bank officials as well as treasury officials in the UK has, I think, been much more aggressive in terms of uh, the outlook for inflation being a risk to growth going forward. So to get a statement and to get a vote seven to two in favor of keeping uh, policy rates on hold, I think was a lot more dovish or um, perhaps sanguine, as you said, about the outlook for inflation than the market was looking for. I think, you know, if, if they had voted, say, uh, maybe five to four in terms of keeping rates on hold, the market reaction would not have been quite as violent. And so you had a very sharp readjustment, I think, in terms of positioning, both in the fixed income space where yields uh, on two-year gilts fell by around 20 basis points in the immediate aftermath of the decision. We also had a very severe, sharp sell-off in uh, in sterling. So the market seemingly getting a little bit of miscommunication or misdirection um, from the Bank of England, whether that's a mistake uh, either in terms of the statement at the MPC or in the messages leading up to it. I'm not certain either way, but I would expect the messaging we get from here on here on out, and certainly that we got from the, the statement after the decision last week, is that there's going to be a lot more of the kind of data dependency, particularly trying to look at employment data in the UK that is not clouded by the effects of the, the furlough system that the UK used to try and prevent the unemployment rate from blowing out. Right, so that solar scheme came to an end, I think, at the beginning of last month. And it's expected that there will possibly be more redundancies and job losses now that that scheme has come to an end, because the government that, you know, was effectively subsidizing um, those salary payments is is no longer going to be be doing so. So it does make sense um, that the central bank would want to wait and see what the impact on the labor market has been before they rush to tighten monetary policy. Um, But I think the Fed has certainly been better, perhaps, at giving forward guidance um, than the Bank of England was over the last few weeks. And as a result, there wasn't much reaction in the market to last week's decision by the Fed to start reducing their asset purchases. But when we look at what the market is pricing in terms of the timing of rate hikes, there does still seem to be a gap between 
what the market is looking for, which is um, potentially two rate hikes from the Fed in the second half of, of next year, against what the Fed itself is actually indicating. Um, so, you know, in the policy uh, or the post-meeting statement and also in the press conference after last week's meeting, um, Chair Powell was, was quite clear that the Fed expects inflation to be transitory um, to a large extent, that they do expect inflation to moderate next year. Are they right to be um, sanguine about inflation next year? I mean, what, what is, is your view in terms of what we can expect on, on, on inflation? Well, we think there's been a couple of big drivers that have been impacting inflation in the U.S. this year, and really kind of globally as well in terms of what's been sending prices higher. One is, as, as we discussed, the impact that energy prices are high, certainly compared with 2020, uh, and really by the standards of the last couple of years. Now, whenever you have this kind of vertical ascent in energy prices, it always makes me think that we're going to go in for a pretty sharp descent on the other side. It might not be quite so rapid and unwinding in the energy price uh, price outlook, but certainly based on the fundamentals that we see, and I think as we've discussed um, previously, is that we expect the energy price story to moderate going into 2022, and probably by the second half of the year, be somewhat of a negative factor in terms of uh, driving inflation higher. Similar stories playing out in food prices as well. So we have food prices that are very elevated at the moment, but most of the big forecasting agencies in terms of their outlook for yields and for crops in 2022 and even beyond are that they're going to be on an improving trend. So we're not going to be facing some uh, as dire shortages or severe shortages in those uh, markets as well. The other big thing that we've seen um, pump up prices in the United States this year have been the kind of reopening frictions. Um, things like uh, when everyone was concerned about the uh, shortage of used cars, for instance, earlier through the year, or when we've had the reopening of activities like um, air travel across the United States, or getting hotel rooms, or eating out at restaurants, things like that. Things that people were prevented from doing throughout much of 2022. There was a natural kind of burst of activity uh, and trying to get those industries to uh, awaken after a long slumber it was always going to be a bit of a process where you're going to have some frictions. That is starting to unwind as well. We're starting to see things like uh, car prices, pardon me, used car prices starting to decline after spiking earlier in the year and probably not going to be one that necessarily goes on for a prolonged period as the uh, economy opens up more and more fully. I think the big variable, though, is the kind of supply chain disruption driver of inflation. And that's one that I think affects the U.S. economy, but it's also feeding through globally. And there's a lot more uncertainty about how that plays out. And I think for an organization like the Fed, they're not necessarily going to be experts in terms of what gets a semiconductor manufacturing plant in Taiwan to produce faster uh, than it had been previously. Um, so the the issue of getting those supply chains back up and running is a lot more nebulous. And I think for them, when they're looking at it, they have a couple of big inflation drivers that they can project with some good certainty are going to moderate. So there is scope for them to be a bit more patient in terms of the outlook on rates when they're dealing with this really big unknown variable in terms of the, the supply chain readjustments. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing around the supply chain issue is it's not just about the factory output, it's also about the shipping side of things. And to the extent that a lot of goods are still coming from China, and China has adopted a zero tolerance approach to, to the coronavirus, which means that 
even a small outbreak um, in absolute terms potentially leads to quite a big snarl up at some of their their ports if they decide to lock down um, the, the entire port. And that sort of thing is unpredictable, right? So you could see a situation where the manufacturing side perhaps gets back on track, but then you have these ad hoc disruptions to, um, to the actual physical movement of goods from one part of the world to another, um, and that potentially takes longer to resolve. Um, and it's something which is entirely dependent on, on the spread of the virus and the ability of the authorities to, to contain it. Um, the other thing, though, which I, I think markets have perhaps put less priority on is that the Fed has a dual mandate, right? So yes, they need to make sure that there is price stability, but they also need to try and uh, allow the economy to recover to a point where there is maximum employment. Um, the market seems to be prioritizing the inflation risks over the employment issues. Now, at the end of last week, we had a really good reading on jobs data in the US for October. So there was a, a big increase in the number of people employed. Can you talk us through some of the, the jobs data and, and how important it is really for the Fed and, and the outlook for monetary policy going forward? Yeah, absolutely. You're, I think you're really right to stress that it's not just inflation that the Fed looks at. They want to make sure that the employment market uh, is getting back to the kind of pre-pandemic levels of health. And the jobs data that we had out for October certainly suggests we are getting back on track very strongly. So we had five, more than 530,000 jobs added in October in the United States, uh, and also some upward revisions to the previous reports as well. So we had a couple of disappointing numbers for August and September. Those look like they have been readjusted or revised higher. So it does look like the labor market is in some good stead. Uh, also, we had a drop in the unemployment rate from 4.8% in September to 4.6%. So on a headline basis alone, it does look like the U.S. economy in terms of the labor market is doing quite well. Um, wage growth is picking up. It's quite elevated at the moment. And I think there is a lot of anxiety. Uh, maybe this is where the market's view about inflation, and the Fed's concern about em employment start to sync up together, that you're going to have wages start to fuel inflation going higher. So we have this kind of period like we saw in the 1970s, where wage growth was very aggressive, and that fed into um, a lot of high inflation levels, but not much growth, not much productivity gains, and kind of stagflation fears. I think we're a little less worried about that, particularly is where, where we're seeing most of the wage growth happening is in young workers, low-skilled workers, and low-income workers. So people who kind of need the benefit of higher um, wages after quite a difficult transition or difficult period of employment in the last year and a half. So from a broader macro story, say on a much longer time frame that maybe the Fed would be looking at perhaps more than a, you know, a dealing desk or uh, the market, getting more workers with better wages is still going to be a net positive outcome for the U.S. economy in the longer run. But that doesn't discount that there is this kind of tension between the market's focus on inflation being at um, above 5% where it's at at the moment in the United States um, and the Fed perhaps trying to prioritize getting the 
uh, the labor market back to kind of the pre-pandemic levels of, of growth that it had. I think one of the, the kind of questions that we're still struggling with or still trying to, to watch for is what's going to constitute full employment. Because if we have the kind of jobs growth that we've had in the last couple of months extend out for most of 2022, then certainly by the end of next year, you're going to be well above the kind of pre-pandemic levels of employment um, on the NFP number alone. The, we've had some commentary though from Fed officials uh, or other central bank observers that they're trying to target the kind of participation rate, particularly among prime age workers, both men and women, which is still some ways off from where we were before the pandemic took hold. So trying to get more and more people back into the labor force there's a lot of reasons that people have left. Um, we've discussed on, on the podcast previously, people taking early retirement uh, or choosing to adjust their work uh, life balances or what kind of expectations they wanna have in terms of, of employment um, after the pandemic. But nevertheless, I think the Fed still wants to keep the employment market running hot at the risk of inflation going up with the idea that there is a couple of variables they think are gonna be disinflationary uh, in the quite near term, at least from the Fed's point of view next year. So potentially we're moving into what could be described as a Goldilocks scenario, really. So we have a view that inflation rates will slow next year uh, because don't forget inflation is, is the rate of change of prices. So when you're looking, for example, at energy prices, even if they remain elevated where they are, the rate of change is, is actually going to be close to zero, um, which immediately would be um, a, a disinflationary um, issue or good. Uh, driver for for next year um, and then obviously if we're expecting energy prices to actually decline in the second half of next year then that potentially becomes uh, deflationary as well so you have inflation slowing and at the same time you've got people coming back to uh, the labor force looking for jobs finding jobs because there, there clearly is still um, a huge demand for labor in in the u.s um, and so that helps to moderate wage growth as well, right? Because if you've got more people coming back to the, the labor market, um, then wages perhaps don't need to rise as much to, to uh, attract them to a specific uh, job. Um, and then that helps to, to um, mitigate some of the concerns around a wage price sp uh, spiral uh, emerging in the United States next year. So potentially by mid-2022, which is when the Fed is likely to finish its tapering process, uh, we could be at a stage where the headline inflation rate is somewhere around 3% instead of uh, over 5% uh, where it is now. And you potentially have all of or most of the people who lost their jobs because of the pandemic uh, back at work, which is kind of exactly the point where it makes sense for the central bank to say, well, perhaps we don't need interest rates at zero anymore. Perhaps we can start to normalize um, those interest rates uh, and, and start to raise them back up to where they should be in a growing economy um, where you're pretty close to maximum employment. So potentially it means the Fed can then move slightly earlier than Q1 2023 in terms of raising, uh, raising rates. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? No, I think that's the absolute, as, as you said, the Goldilocks scenario um, where uh, the, the economy could certainly absorb uh, higher interest rates and you could have a monetary policy return to kind of pre-existing norms and, in terms of conventional policy stance. But I would guess the issue for, for the Fed and for other central banks is the economy is not there yet. 
the markets might be pricing it in like it is, certainly in terms of the issue of, of having high levels of inflation, but getting everything back in order, uh, your labor market and the inflation story under control, uh, I, we're just not there yet right now. So I think that's what is giving the Fed pause. And I think it's, it's important to sort of tease out from the last meeting as well that while the Fed did introduce the fact or the plan that they're going to start tapering asset purchases by 15 billion per month, at least for the next two months, they didn't set themselves down to a permanent schedule. So they could speed up if things look a lot better in terms of the outlook for growth, uh, labor market and, and inflation, but they could also slow down if they things uh, see things derailing a little bit um, on the, the negative side. So it's, I don't think they want to tie themselves to a clear cut preordained policy path. Uh, which could lead to some uh, disappointment or some more market dislocations by the midpoint of, of next year if one of those issues it hasn't materialized. So the labor market hasn't lived up to expectations uh, or inflation um, really falls short of expectations either on the upside or the downside. Great. So I guess data dependent is the key word then, whether it's uh, for, for the Bank of England or uh, the Fed or indeed uh, the ECB and, and, and any other of the major central banks. Um, and to some extent, you know, that's that's kind of what we we spend our lives doing is looking at the data and, and deciding what it means for policy uh, and, and everything else. Um, so thanks very much for, for talking all of these issues through uh, with me today. Uh, thank you to our listeners who've joined us on the podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it and we hope you've uh, found it useful. Um, and we look forward to speaking with you again uh, in a few weeks' time. <laughs>